have everybody here this morning. We appreciate your coming out. Uh, I trust that you've had a good week. It's sunny in here today. I see the sun reflecting off some of your pretty faces back there this morning, and so we are glad that you are here. Uh, it is a sweet time of year. We always enjoy this as we move forward toward Advent, the coming of our Lord, just that renewed promise, the hope, so many things that the Advent of Christ produces in our lives, and I trust that you're enjoying that. I trust that you're in an Advent reading program, or at least engaging in one of the Gospels and thinking through the life of Christ, or maybe some of the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, it's always helpful for me personally to be involved in something like that that kind of keeps me day in and day out uh, really connected to uh, the truth of Christmas and what it is all about. We do welcome you. Uh, I met one new lady. She was here last week. I wasn't here last week. We were down in Lexington uh, visiting our son's church there and uh, had a great time of worship down there, but good to have you with us here this morning. Uh, if there's anyone else visiting with us today, we're glad that you are here. You're very welcome. We trust that you will receive a warm welcome from our church people, but more than anything, that you will sense the presence of Christ and your hearts will be drawn to our glorious Lord this morning. Uh, if you would take just a moment and look at your bulletin, today was the last training hour until July or January, July, January the 9th, and so the next few weeks we are giving our teachers a break during this time. Handel's Messiah, someone has very kindly um, paid for a hundred tickets for our church family. If you would like to attend the Handel's Messiah, the details are here, the time and everything, there is a sign-up sheet in the back. Make sure you get your names on that. Uh, don't just put your name and family. Each individual needs to put their name down or have their name on the list so you can claim your tickets. We need to have an accurate count. Uh, so if you would like to come, uh, your children are welcome to come as well. Please do so. It is always a wonderful thing. It certainly is very biblical and accurate, the singing forth of the Christmas story. And so we would encourage you to be a part of that if you would like to. And we give thanks to the individual that has done that. Take a moment and look through the green sheet that is in your bulletin. Uh, people have very kindly purchased poinsettias to decorate our auditorium. Plus, it's an opportunity for those who are on here just simply to remember someone who's very special in their life, to give honor to them. Uh, many of our people have done that. So take a moment and look through that front and back um, and just reflect on uh, those things. That's, those, are, those people are listed on are very important. Uh, there are several on there for Sean. I thought that was a, certainly a very fitting tribute to that dear brother. Uh, meant so much to our church family. So take a moment and look through that, if you would, please. Thursday is our Sojourners Luncheon. The church is providing the meat. We're asking our folks to bring a side dessert or both. Uh, join us at noon. Uh, we have some special music planned. It'll be a wonderful time, so we're looking forward to that. Christmas Eve service, make sure you put that on your calendar. If you're unable to come but want to be a part of that, there will be online availability for that. All right, make sure you look at all the rest of the things that are there. Okay, let's take just a moment and prepare our minds and our hearts to, as it were, enter into the presence of the Lord to give worship and praise.
praise and honor and glory unto him. ask you to stand if you would please as we listen to God's word call our hearts to worship last week Pastor Jason introduced the first part of Psalm 118 I thought it would be very appropriate to read the entirety of the psalm as we think about the Christ we think about our Lord the things that are foretold of him uh, we certainly see our Christ prominent in this messianic psalm these are powerful truths listen as God calls our hearts to him Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
Athanasius died in 373 AD, and on his tombstone, the epithet reads, Anathasius contra mundum, that is, Anastasia, Anastasius against the world. So he suffered greatly during the Arian uh, controversy because of his steadfast profession of the Trinitarian orthodoxy. So as we stand on the shoulders of these giants, let us continue our reciting of the Athanasian Creed. Read with me, please. Similarly, the Father is almighty. that are new in our lives every day. Father, we see the economies of the Trinity. Father, you've called us. Son, you've redeemed us. Spirit, you've sealed us. But yet one God and one salvation from all eternity. Father, we praise your holy name. Father, prepare our hearts and our minds to worship you. Father, empty us of all vanity and may our focus be on you. Lord, may we hear from your word today. May our hearts be changed. And then we pray. Amen. Please stand. Amen. 
seated and as you are hear this God's holy word a reading from the gospel of Matthew now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as her wife, for you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Reading from the epistle to the Philippians. Have it this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in... He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father please stand and let's continue to worship Skies were free. 
trust you'll take a moment and look through the insert in your bulletin day as we focus on Iraq. It's been interesting to me, some of these nations that bring to our mind as, as a nation, people who stand contrary to us, we need to recognize that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in these nations seeking to give forth the gospel in areas that are tremendously needy. So you listen as a man from Iraq lifts his nation up before the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, the creator of the universe and of the heavens and the earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords, thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have of approaching your throne with our prayer requests knowing that they will be heard and answered. Thank you, Lord, that we can call you our Father. Thank you for your love, for your mercy, for saving us, O oh Lord, from sin. O oh Lord, we are coming to you, lifting up to you the country of Iraq, once known for its splendor and beauty, and now is in deep distress and fear. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ that have seen so much violence, Lord, and evil in the name of religion. Fathers have been martyred, mothers widowed, and children have been orphaned because they did not renounce their faith in you. Lord, we pray that they will be faithful to the end. Lord, we pray that you will give them protection, strength, boldness in their faith. We pray that they will be joyful and peace in the midst of tragedy and danger. We pray, dear Lord, that mercy will rule their hearts towards those that have oppressed them. Lord, I also pray for the orphaned Christian children that have been taught false religion, false faith in the orphanage. Lord, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to put a protection over their hearts, that they would not accept the teachings of the false religion, that, Lord, the Holy Spirit would teach them the truth, which is your truth, O Lord God, that there is only one way, one way to you, and that is through Jesus Christ. Lord, we also pray for the Muslim people of Iraq, that they would be open to hearing the gospel truth, that you would reveal yourself in natural or supernatural way, that they would find freedom, fullness, and peace in the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, bring them to you. We pray for all the Middle Eastern nations, O oh Lord, that you would be glorified in Iraq and in all the other nations. Now and forever, we pray this in our victorious Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Father, each week as we listen to brothers and sisters lift up their nations before you, crying out for your hand of mercy to fall upon them, for the gospel to break forth in the darkness of that land. Lord, we too lift them up before you. I pray, O oh God, that you would be with each of these folks who know you, that their faith would be strong in the midst of deep persecution, isolation. I pray, God, that you would give them courage to be able to speak of Christ as you open doors. I pray, Father, that you would protect children, that you would protect the wives of these men that may be imprisoned. I ask, O oh God, that you would continue to watch over them. We know you will. We know that you are a shepherd that cares so deeply for your people, your flock. We know, Lord, that you have a people that you will call unto yourself through the gospel, and we pray that it would go forth. Lord, help us to be faithful to pray, to give, and to go, Lord, as you would direct our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. and you get an applause. How about that, huh? You better clap when I finish my sermon, too. Thank you, Madison and Greg, for serving us this morning. 
Well, if you would take your Bibles and open with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We are continuing our short series on the deity and humanity of Christ. While you're turning, I will remind you, though I probably do not need to, uh, you Randolph Streeters, those of you who've been around for any amount of time, that this week, uh, this Friday, we will remember one year since we lost our brother, Sean Moran. Um, it's hard to believe it's been a year. But for those of you, it, it dawned on me last Sunday when I mentioned that on the back table we have printed some collections, his Advent calls to worship. Uh, some of you have no idea who we're talking about, which really is, I can't understand. Uh, because for me personally, my time at Randolph Street since 2007 is so intertwined with Sean. Um, but we lost Sean last December 17th. He was a faithful elder, led our worship, um, served us in so many different ways, many of those of which you and I never saw with our eyes uh, behind the scenes, and we deeply miss him. And uh, even today, we still honor him with a little... Irish green bow on his music stand. Uh, but I say that to say this. Pray for uh, Julia and Samuel this week. I believe they're on vacation right now. Uh, but please pray for them as they walk through. Just all this week holds for them. And grab the collection of, uh, of calls to worship we've put together for the Advent. Uh, grab those, take them home, read through them as you walk through uh, your Advent celebrations. C.S. Lewis said, the central miracle asserted by Christians, should get your ears, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. And the reason Lewis said this is because of the next sentence. They say, Lewis was, Lewis was we, we say that God became man. So with that in mind, that's why Lewis said this is the central miracle that we affirm together as Christians. Because this miracle is a mystery, hard to grasp with our minds, our finite human understanding, God enrobing himself in the flesh, becoming man and dwelling among us. But that is our conviction, that is our affirmation here as a church, and listening to Roger lead us through the Athanasian Creed this morning. That is, that is not simply our conviction, this has been the testimony of the church. For thousands of years, the church has stood on this kind of truth, this Trinitarian truth. Even though we affirm what we affirm about Jesus and his humanity, we stand on this rock-solid ground of our Trinitarian faith, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is our conviction. We believe here at Randolph Street, and the church has affirmed this, that at the incarnation, the eternal Son of God... Those aren't throwaway words. The eternal, eternal Son of God took upon himself humanity. In doing so, he did not lose divinity or cease to be God. He is Jesus, fully and truly divine, fully and truly human. Two natures, divine, human, existing in one person. 
Our goal these last two weeks has been to spend a little bit of time thinking through the deity of Christ. Hopefully that was helpful to you. I know it got a little thick, a little confusing at times, but hopefully that served you today. And next week, we're going to look through the humanity of Christ. We're going to think through the humanity of Christ. These four weeks, hopefully, will grow our awareness of what we celebrate for Christmas. That's the whole point of this. I want it to grow our awareness. I want it to grow our minds. As we think about Christ, as we think about the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, because I think if our minds grow in these areas, then the natural fallout of that will be God will be glorified by us because we will be caught up in this wonder, this glory of the incarnate Christ. It's easy for me to see, as, as I think about church history, we spent a little bit of time on that the first of this sermon series. It's easy for me to see why the church at times wrestled with the claim of the deity of Christ. I, I get that. Because what the church is affirming, because the scriptures teach it, is that God entered into our world. So I, I, I get the wrestling with the deity of Christ. But it wasn't just the deity of Christ that the early church wrestled with. Very early, a, a very early heresy that would affect the church even before the apostle John died would be that some were denying not the deity of Christ, but the humanity of Christ. One error that crept early into the church was an error known as docetism. Docetism is a, a fancy word taken from a Greek verb, dokeo, which means to appear, which hopefully you're, you're listening well because now you, you can already hear what the heresy is, right? Docetism was a claim that Christ only appeared to be human, but he was not truly human. He did, he did not take up on himself a fully human nature. He only, he only appeared that way. I say this happened before the, before the Apostle John even died. Listen, listen to John. This is 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Don't miss what John is doing. He's battling something. He's addressing something. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh that spirit is from God if it confesses that truth. I read this text a few weeks ago, 2 John. This is the same writer, 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not know, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. I mean, Jesus had been crucified less than 60 years before John wrote this. He lived on this earth for 30 plus years. Less than 60 years later, there was a heresy that was creeping into the church that was denying the true humanity of Christ. And John says, there are those who are denying this, and then he follows it up by saying, such a one is a deceiver, and he can't use stronger language, they are the Antichrist. If you deny Jesus has come in the flesh, which some were doing, you're a deceiver. He didn't appear to be human. Jesus, when he came into this world, he was fully and truly human. 
Ignatius is a early church father, disciple of John. He was a pastor in Antioch. He would say this. He affirms that Jesus was both flesh and spirit. This is a disciple of John, which is kind of fascinating. He is both flesh and spirit. And then I love this. He's born and unborn. He's, just, he's wrestling with this mystery of the incarnation, right? God, man, divan, human flesh. So Ignatius says he's, he's born, yet he's unborn. He's God in man, true life in death, both from Mary and from God, first subject to suffering, then beyond it. Tertullian, another early child. I just, I just love reading these out loud. He would die at the age of 60 in 220 AD. Tertullian carries a unique place in church history. He was the first to, know, to use, as far as we know, the term Trinity. He was a pastor, a leader in the church of North Africa. He would say this, speaking of Jesus, he suffered nothing who did not, who did not truly suffer. He suffered nothing who did not truly suffer. And then he says, a phantom could not truly suffer. You hear that? So he's going, he's going right at this heresy. A phantom could not truly suffer. He says, God's entire work is subverted if you believe this. Christ's death, wherein lies the whole weight and fruit of the Christian name, is denied if you believe he didn't appear in the flesh. The apostle asserts Christ's humanity so expressly and undoubtedly real, making it the very foundation of the gospel of our salvation and of uh, his own preaching. You see, the early church, John and the New Testament writers, and those who embrace the truth of the New Testament, they walk out of the New Testament, then they say, the humanity of Christ, the real, genuine, true humanity of Christ is absolutely essential to our faith. And it, Tertullian says, it is the very foundation of the gospel. It's the foundation of our salvation. Next week in Hebrews chapter 2, we are going to see that. Take away the humanity of Christ. You have no salvation. That's how important this is. It's not some fancy little Christmas children's story about a baby being born. This is God in the flesh. And you subtract God or you subtract flesh, you have no salvation. So today and next week, we're going to look at the humanity of Christ. Here's your outline for this morning if you're going to take notes. It's pretty simple. We're going to look at a psalm and a problem. This is it's all in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at a psalm and a problem that's created in the writer's mind of Hebrews. So he's, he's going to recite a psalm for us, and then he's going to identify a problem in that psalm as he looks around. Then we're going to look at number two. We're going to look at Hebrews 2 and the solution to that problem. And then I'm going to give three concluding thoughts to move us into next week or to just keep propelling us into the Advent season. And before I go any further, let me, let me encourage you. Let the mystery of everything I just said be okay with that. Okay, be, be okay with the mystery. How, how can God take upon himself man, full human nature, 
full divine nature, one person. Let, let that mystery, that tension rest in your mind and let it draw you not to doubt. Let it draw you to worship. This is an incredible mystery of our faith and that's, it's okay for it to be a mystery. It's okay. So your Bible's open to Hebrews 2. It's been a while since we've taken time in this particular book. We preached through it a number of years ago. Let me, let me just say to you up front, I'm not going to walk through every word. This isn't a typical expository series. I'm not going to walk through every word of this text. We're not going to break apart every verb and every noun and every direct object and see how it all relates to one another. I'm going to pick my way through this text today and next week with, with the incarnation in my mind, Advent season in my mind, and I want to see the language that the early church, this writer of the book of Hebrews, I want to see the language they used in relationship to Jesus and his humanity. And I also want to see next week primarily why this humanity that we're talking about is so absolutely crucial to our faith. So I want to understand it to the best of our ability, but then I'm going to move in next week and say, here's why it's so very important to us. This is why it is central to our faith. So let's first look at the problem. Psalm 8 and a problem that's created in the mind of the writer of Hebrews. So if you look down at your Bibles, verse number five, chapter two, I'm gonna read through as we work our way through this text. The writer says, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, which is an interesting way for this writer. He, he knew where it was, but he's just drawing our attention to this. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6 in your English translation. When this writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, his point, which is summarized in verse number 5, is this. God has not subjected this world to angels, but instead he subjected this world to mankind. And that's where his problem is going to be in just a moment. But, that, but that's his point. He's not subjected this world to, to the angel, angelic world. He subjected it to mankind. Psalm 8, if you would take time maybe this afternoon to go back and read through it, Psalm 8 is a hymn of praise. It's, it's the author that stands David and, and he looks up on creation and he lifts up his voice or his pen, if you will, in praise to God for his creation because in the author's mind, creation reflects the glory and the majesty of God. So the author begins Psalm 8 with this, O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So he, he stands back, he looks at the earth, and he says, oh, Lord, how glorious is your name. Creation just calls that out of us, doesn't it? When you look up on the beauty of what God has done, the first thought for the redeemed mind must be, oh, how great God is. And this is what the author of Psalm 8 is doing. And again, it's not unusual for the Psalms. I think Tim mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in his one of his sermons. They, they often call out God as the creator and maker of all things, and they look up on the beauty of creation. And what, why? Because they're seeing the glory of God and his fingerprint upon creation. 
And this, and this writer of the Psalm 8, he's shocked that God has bestowed upon man this high responsibility of dominion over that creation. He's going to say in Psalm 8, verses 3 and following, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, that's Psalm 8. Now, this is where the writer of Hebrews picks up. What is man, if you look down at your Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, when this author looks out over creation and over the, the universe, and remember we talked about last week, my little scientific Google experience, the size of our universe, which the, the author of Psalm 8, the universe was probably, well, obviously, much more smaller for him and his perception than it is for us in the day of Hubble telescopes and Google, right? We, we see the, the glorious size of creation. This is what this author is doing. He, he looks at creation. He says, man, man seems rather insignificant. When you look up on the vast universe and potentially trillions of galaxies, the response is we are so small. So it it's, it's, makes sense that he would say, what is man that you are even mindful of him? I mean, you ever, as a kid, I think I've said this before, you, you see the ant hill, what did you always do, right? You showed your dominion over the ants, right? You scattered them abroad. But you look down, they're so insignificant. Well, multiply that by infinity, if that's even possible. That, that's the difference between you and God. And this author looks up on his vast universe in light of that, that God created everything. He spoke it into existence. And his response is, what is man that you are even mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would even care for him? And then he continues, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. God created everything and he gave it to man. The author adds a comment at the end of verse number eight. It should be in your Bibles. It should be separate from his citation of Psalm eight. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. That, that's the author of Hebrews giving us a little bit of commentary. He just tells us what happened. In putting, in putting everything in subjection to mankind, he left nothing outside of his control. That's gonna create a problem. In just a moment. But back to Psalm 8, God values humanity. I mean, that's what we learn, right? He places us, mankind, in a high position over his creation. He's made us a little lower than the angels, right? We get that. And he's given us a charge over his creation in which he appointed Adam over his creative works. We've been crowned, the author says here, with glory and honor. He's, he's put everything in subjection under our feet. Let me give a little background to Psalm 8. I think the, the background to Psalm 8, really the background of the whole Bible, is Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm going to add 3 in in just a moment. The background of the whole Bible is Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. This psalm is grounded in those particular chapters. This psalm reminds us, the, the writer of this psalm reminds us of what God has done. He originally gave to mankind, male and female, 
not only a status and dignity of being created in his own image, but he gave us, in Adam, he gave us the responsibility and charge that we should oversee, I'll use that term for a moment, his creation. All right, here it is, Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. This is what Psalm 8 is grounded in, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here it is, subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is what Psalm 8 is reflecting on. You look up on creation, God, why would you be mindful of us? And yet, you've put everything in subjection under our feet, if you will. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 8. But that's the background, Genesis 1. Now, let me connect Genesis with the problem in Hebrews. Look back at Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 8. I left off one little phrase. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the author reads Psalm 8. He's got Genesis 1 and 2 in his mind. God created man and woman in his image gave them the authority to subdue the earth and then he looks around and says but right now i just don't see it right the author looks around and he, he sees a problem that's created by psalm 8 the problem is because of the other chapter i mentioned a moment ago genesis chapter 3 the problem is grounded back in genesis 3 and adam's disobedience Instead of creation being subjected to mankind, creation, because of Adam's disobedience, is now a foe. I mean, listen to what God does in Genesis chapter 3. In light of Adam's disobedience, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. I mean, you hear the change? Genesis chapter 2, subdue it. Genesis chapter 3, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's where we live. We live in a Genesis 3 world. So here in this particular text of Hebrews chapter 2, the writer's thinking about, because of Psalm 8, the original intention of mankind in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But at the moment of Adam's rebellion, his descendants and the earth was thrown into turmoil and under the curse of God. So instead of peace and harmony, as we look upon creation... We see widespread famines, devastating earthquakes and hurricanes, uncontrollable fires. And as we all witness these last 24 plus hours, we see tornadoes that bring unthinkable disasters up on mankind. 
he looks at Psalm 8 and he says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him because we live in a Genesis 3 world. It feels at times man does not have dominion over creation, but that creation has dominion over man. So in the mind of this author, as he looks at this psalm, he's confused, he's struggling. But then he gives us the solution to the problem. That's why he's developed the problem in the first place. He's, he's just driving us to the solution. Look down at verse number nine. But... Okay, so he's going to contrast here. At present, I look around, I don't see everything in subjection to mankind. But then he turns to verse number nine. But here's what I do see. I see him who for a little while, who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And so he's going to turn our attention here. And you, you feel this. If you get the background of, of Psalm 8, you feel this. The, the narrative here, Adam failed his failure brought forth destruction. But Jesus, and this is what the author is driving us toward in all of Hebrews, but Jesus did not fail and he will deliver. I mean, that's, that's the tension that he's working out here. Jesus didn't fail. He was obedient, even to the point of death, and he will, he will deliver his people. Notice what it says here about Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels. What, what category does that place him in? Well, the same category that Psalm 8 placed us in. He's made a little lower than the angels. Now, let's step into that. The eternal Son of God became man. His aim, if you let your eyes linger down to verse 10, we're not going to go through this, but his aim in becoming lower than the angels is he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. All right. That which Adam felt at, Adam banished from the garden under the judgment of God, Jesus would not fail. He would, he would succeed. He's going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. I mean, that's the idea of this, of this whole text. But our point is the advent. This is a reference to the incarnation. He was made lower than the angels. This is the eternal Son of God who shares the divine essence with the Father and Spirit. He now enters into a condition or a state that is deemed lower than angels as he enters into humanity. I can read Psalm 8 and say, okay, yes, it makes sense for me to be lower than angels. I recognize that. I mean, typically the response of any human being in the Bible when they come face to face with an angel is what? They fall on their faces, fear and trembling, because these are glorious beings. And so I can look at that and say, okay, I'm, I'm made a little lower than the angels. I get that. But this author is going to take Jesus and put him in that same category and say, okay, he was made lower than the angels. Now, take your Bibles, flip back probably one page, Hebrews chapter 1. This is the one he's talking about. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is Colossians chapter 1 in Hebrew's language. He is the radiance of the glory of God, speaking of Jesus, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's the text we've been looking at, such similar language in Colossians chapter 1. 
But let me remind you, this one he's talking about bears the very marks of God. He perfectly reflects the very nature of God. This is the one now that he's talking about who becomes lower than angels. It's unthinkable. For me and you, yeah, I get it. For the eternal Son of God, who bears the very nature of God, for him now to be classified like me, lower than angels. This is the one who shared the glory with the Father from all eternity. All eternity. And now, he's lower than angels. He entered into where you are and where I am. This is the astounding reality of the Incarnation. He laid aside, not his deity, let's be clear, he laid aside his heavenly glory, and he became lower than the angels. You remember Jesus the night before he would be crucified? Uh, really, just a few short hours before he would be crucified. Remember the prayer he offered up to the Father in John 17? And remember very early in that narrative, Father, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Just in that moment of his humanity, he's, I would imagine, on his face before the Father. He's reflecting and thinking. He knows what is before him. He knows the cup is his to drink. Father, restore that glory unto me. I would imagine in that moment, now this isn't inspired by any sense. This isn't in the Bible. But I, I could guess, a good guess, at that moment when Jesus poured his heart out to his Father, restored me the glory that I have with you before the foundation of the world. If the angels could have heard that prayer, they would have all been standing around the throne of God saying, yes, please restore the glory that he had with you before the foundation of the world. He's been made lower than us. God forbid, restore that glory unto the eternal Son of God. The angels must have looked up on this moment when he entered into our condition made lower than them, the angels. They must have looked up on this moment with utter shock and, and horror, right? This is the eternal son of God, the creator, lower than the angels. Now this author is going to be clear Jesus becomes lower than the angels in status and position, and he does so by taking on flesh and blood. This is where I said I'm going to kind of skip through this text. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. I'm not going to read the rest of it. There's all kinds of so that or that statements, purpose statements in this narrative or in this text. We're not going to talk about any of those purpose statements today. I'm saving all those for next week. There's all kinds of purpose. He did this so that, right, that's, that's why we go back to those earlier quotes in Tertullian. This is foundation of our salvation. There's no salvation without this. And the author is going to say that to us next week. But this digs in a little bit deeper in verse number 14. He took up on himself humanity. He took body and soul. He's fully or truly human. He lived life 
the eternal son of God as a true human being and he figured it out as a true man. There's few verses in the Bible more shocking than Luke chapter two, verse number 52. When it says this about Jesus, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There are few verses in the Bible more shocking than that particular verse. Because what Luke says, Jesus grew intellectually, he grew physically, he grew socially, and he grew spiritually. This is where the mystery really begins to creep in. Luther would say the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh. I love that language. He sunk himself into our flesh. Luther would say is beyond all human understanding. Luke, the inspired writer, said Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, in favor with God and man. He grew intellectually, physically, socially, and spiritually. That is an absolute mystery. But see, when the writer uses this kind of language, he took on himself flesh and blood. He, he wants us to understand here, I think he took on a human nature. It's more than just a body or a soul. He took up on himself every aspect of our humanity. Jesus, the eternal son of God, experienced what it meant to be a physical human being. He was a fetus in, the mother, in his mother's womb. He was a dependent baby, a learning child, an awkward teenager. He was truly human. He learned how to crawl and stand and walk and eat and speak and read and sing and write. This is the one who created all things. His body grew tired. John records for us in John 4 that after a long journey, he was wearied. In the wilderness in Matthew 4, he grew hungry. At the cross in John 19, he cried out, I thirst. He wept like we weep in John chapter 11. He experienced physical pain. When beaten by soldiers, his nerve endings responded just like yours. He took on humanity. He entered into our condition fully, truly. I think often we think about Jesus as like Superman. Why do you just... I'm not a big Superman fan, so I'm probably going to say something stupid if I press that analogy too far. But, but this superhero that's, not, that's unaffected as a human being, like he entered in and swooped and conquered and no challenges, no struggles. He didn't experience hardships. Jesus took up on himself. He was made lower than the angels. He took up on himself flesh and blood. He entered into our condition and he experienced fully what it means to be a human being. And that's, listen, that's gonna be absolutely crucial for your sanctification next week. You may be sitting there saying, well, why is this even important for me right now? Next week, I'm gonna tell you why it's important for you right now. Verse 17, if you let your eyes linger down, therefore, here's one of those purpose statements, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. When he took humanity up on him, he lived in a fallen world, our suffering, our temptations, he took up on himself all the limitations and struggles of our state without sin. 
Richard Sims, the great Puritan preacher, would reflect upon these kinds of truths, and he would say this, for the infinite, glorious creator of all things, which the writer of Hebrews has already ascribed to Jesus, he's created all things, and he upholds every one of them by the word of his power. That's what he's already said about Jesus. Sibs says, for the infinite, glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. Are you catching a little theme here in some of the greatest minds in the history of the church? You, like, we want to wrestle with this kind of truth, and we want to step into it. I'm, it's the reason I'm preaching. I'm going to press you further into this, the deity and humanity of Christ. And by no means in these four weeks are we scaling the whole of that mountain. We're, we're touching the tip of an iceberg. And I want to press us into that. But the more you press into it as a finite creature looking up on this infinite creator, the common theme among the most well-equipped minds in the history of the church was this. It exceeds all human understanding. And that is a good place for you to be. That is a good place for you to be this Advent season. Looking at Jesus, divine human, God-man, and confessing in your own soul, this is beyond all human understanding. Why? Because we are talking about the mind of God. That is a good, healthy place for you to sit in this Advent season, just captured by mystery, overwhelmed and awed by the glory of our Creator, our God, enrobing Himself in flesh and dwelling among us. I think in 1 John chapter 1, when, when John begins that, he is struck by the fact that he, he heard, he touched, he looked up on the word of life. I mean, he, he couldn't believe it. I think he was overwhelmed by this. What we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the invisible God, this one who is the image of God, he, he's declared him to us, he's revealed him to us, and John began to understand that, and he looked up on this, he said, I can't believe this. We touched him, we looked up on him, we, we heard him talk. For the infinite, glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human Understanding, Jesus entered into our condition truly, truly human. Let me give you three concluding thoughts very quickly. My primary challenge to you these four weeks is not to pass over, is to encourage you not to pass over these doctrinal truths quickly this Advent season. These are cherished truths for the church. I didn't know that about Athanasius on his tomb. <laughs> I had no idea. But listen, th these men and women who have gone before us, they believe this truth. And they proclaimed this truth. They were, they were willing to lay their lives down for these truths. These truths are cherished by the church. Here's what I'm encouraging you toward Randolph Street, the deity, humanity of Christ. Let these truths have their place in your mind, in your life. Let them have work in your heart and let them create a deeper awe for God and what he has done through his son. Paul would say this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and I would love just to stop and preach a whole sermon about that. Though he was rich, the eternal glory that he shared with the Father from before all creation, 
Paul says, yet for your sake, he became poor. Or we could put some Hebrew language in there, right? Yet for your sake, he was made a little lower than the angels. Yet for your sake, he shared in flesh and blood. Yet for your sake, he was made like you in every respect, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Get swept up into this during the Advent season, knowing it is for you and your salvation. It is for you and your salvation. Number two, I want to come back to a little phrase that I just skipped in verse number nine. Let your eyes linger back to verse number nine. But we see him who, here's the phrase I skipped, for a little while was made lower than the angels. That, that little phrase, little while, is really important for us as Christians. His status lower than the angels was just for a little while his suffering his humiliation and this author is going to make that clear in verse number nine namely jesus and then he says this is this is what he is now he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death and here's another so that or purpose statement that follows that you see, Jesus' status, though he is the God-man, and he will be the God-man forever, Jesus' status is no longer that of humiliation, but now it is as, as a status of exaltation. For a little while, during this earthly life, 30-plus years, that glory was shut in, but not now. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he sits there as the glorious God-man, and his glory will shine for all eternity. That humiliation, that moment when he became lower than the angels, that was brief. It was a little, little while. And now there he is. I mean, this author, it's, it's, it's a great idea here, a great imagery in our minds. As is Jesus, he's crowned with glory and honor. I look up and there he is. Number three, I can't preach this text without thinking about Philippians 2 and the fundamental role that I had in my life and my thinking about my walk with God. Philippians chapter 2, namely verse number 5. You remember before he talks about everything we've been talking about these last three weeks in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, and really even 9 through 11, what I was just talking about. Before he says any of that, he tells the Philippians, let this mind be in you. And then he walks us through the humiliation of Christ and what that meant. Randolph Street, next week I'm going to talk a lot about the purpose of his humanity. I'm going to talk about your salvation and your sanctification. And I'm not going to talk about this, so I need to throw it in now. But as we think through the incarnation and what Christ gave up to enter into our condition, that's where Paul says, okay, you let that kind of mind be in you. And I wrote this when I was preaching through that text. How, how do we live in a world full of strife and division, arrogance and hatred? That's where we live. How do we live there and honor God? 
How do we engage with those who disagree, even within the context of the church, good brothers and sisters? How do we engage with them we disagree with? Well, Paul's answer to that in Philippians chapter 2, and this is where this theology of Christ really presses into us. Paul's answer to that is this, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How do we live as husbands and wives? Well, let this mind be in you. Look at Christ and let that mind, let that mentality, let that press into your own heart. Calvin would say, since then, the Son of God descended from so great a height, which is what we've been talking about. The Son of God has descended from so great a height, he says, how unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. Let the incarnation of the truths of Jesus and who he is and, and what he became as a man, let those truths, let them press into your heart and sanctify you. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. Amen? Amen. May God do that for us. Let's pray together. Well, what a note to end on, Father, as we think about the incarnation of your Son. We behold his glory as the eternal Son of God, infinite and bound, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all the truths that we can ascribe to the eternal Son of God. And yet he humbled himself. He became lower than the angels. And Paul says, let that mind be in us. So, Father, before I stop and just corporately thank you, let me first ask of you, Father, to work in us Christ-likeness. Yeah, we, we can't be fully like your son, but Lord, shape this in us. Let us have that mind that Jesus had. As we live in this world that's full of anger and hate, arrogance, oh God, shape in us humility and kindness and love like our Savior. Now to thank you, Father, such a glorious mystery you have planned from all eternity that your eternal son would enter into our state, our condition. Father, I think it would be right for us as a church to stop this Advent, third Sunday of the Advent season and just corporately express our gratitude and gratefulness to you, our Father, for this eternal plan and purpose that you have set forth in your Son. It is a mystery. It is beyond human understanding. Yet we believe it with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And because of it, together as a church this morning, we let our hearts linger back to you in praise and adoration to a gracious and kind Father. 
This Advent season, may there be many moments for the people of Randolph Street to have quiet, prolonged expressions of gratefulness to you, our God, and all that you have done for us. I would ask that you would allow these truths to sharpen us and to shape us, these hard truths. Let them rest in our hearts and let us pursue them so that we can better understand the gospel. As a church, let us love these truths, proclaim these, let us sing about these truths, let us preach these truths. And Father, all of that so that you would be glorified. Thank you again for this text. Help us as we look toward next week and to see why this is so eternally important for us. I ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would.
thank you, Pastor Jason. I know this Advent has been special to my heart. I appreciate your encouragement to press us into these truths and let them settle on us to bring glory to God. It's, it's been a sweet, sweet season in my own heart and life. Let us conclude with a benediction today, the ironic blessing upon the New Old Testament saints. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 25. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you.